Welcome to the Alcohol Freedom Podcast, where we are bringing you a modern and judgment-free conversation about how we relate to our drinking habits. I'm Michelle Kapler, and you've got episode 28. Hi, friend. Thanks for being here. I'm really, really excited to share today's conversation with you. My friend and colleague and fellow coach, Shade Curry, is coming on the podcast today to talk about dating, divorce, and drinking, the three Ds. And I'm looking forward to sharing it with you. So just as a bit of a disclaimer, if you hear some buzzing and thumping and humming in the background. It's because I'm trying out a new podcast setting, but my house is pretty noisy because we live on an off-grid property and it is a really sunny day today. And what that means is that our solar panels are just sucking in the energy from the bright, bright sun reflecting off the snow. And that means that it's completely powerfully powering up our battery bank so we can store the energy to use it for later, but it makes this crazy humming and thumping noise. So if you hear that in the background, my apologies, but it just means that I will get to do extra loads of laundry tonight. So thank you for your patience. Now, my conversation with Shade is going to be played in just a minute and The reason why I asked her to come on the podcast is because she is a dating after divorce coach, which I think might be a really interesting perspective for my audience of amazing, high-powered professional women who might be divorced and or might be dating or might be both. And her objective with her coaching practice is to help somebody find their next person. And I think that that can be a really interesting mountain to climb when you are a newly non-drinker or maybe you're considering living an alcohol-free lifestyle. So we're going to talk a a little bit about drinking during a tumultuous marriage and then going through that transition and finding a new identity. And then we're going to also talk a little bit about actually integrating your new non-drinking identity into your dating life thereafter and finding your person and how that works and how to talk about drinking on your dating profile and how to handle drinking on dates and how to decide if a person's drinking lifestyle is a good match for you and how to reconcile all of that with your very, very human and noisy brain. So, Before I share my interview with Shade, I'm going to read her professional bio. Shade Curry is a certified life coach and relationship coach and the host of the Dating After Divorce podcast. Shade works with women to recover, rebuild, and get married again after divorce. And I will make sure that I link all of her info up in the show notes because I know that you're going to want to reach out and meet her. She's such a wonderful and warm person. So without further ado, here is my recorded interview with Shade. All right. Welcome, Shade. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you, Michelle. It's a pleasure to be here. So let's dive right in. I've already talked a little bit about you professionally in the introduction to the episode, but I'd love to hear in your words, tell us a little bit about yourself and who you are and who you help. Yes. So I am a life coach. Um, I specifically work with divorced women who are dating again. So I help them navigate being back in the pool. And as we know, that's such a loaded word, uh, being back in the dating pool, 
learning new skills that they may not have learned before, figuring out how not to make the mistakes they made the first time around, and then just really finding that special person that they want to be with the second or third time around. Amazing. That's such interesting work because I think it's really parallel to to the work that I do because getting divorced and then dating again, as well as quitting drinking or just having a different relationship with alcohol, both of them require a bit of a change in identity. You kind of have to become a new version of yourself to kind of move through to the next thing. Do you find that that's the case with your clients? A hundred percent. A lot of my clients and in my experience, because I'm also divorced and remarried, is that many of us come out of the marriage with like an identity crisis. Like I, I hear this over and over. I don't even know who I am. I don't know what I like. I don't know what I want. I, you know, what, what do I do with this second half of my life? So that happens quite a bit. And part of that shift is really taking the time to say, I want to answer those questions. And that a lot of what we call doing the work is really sitting with where you are and saying, I'm going to stop for a minute. I'm going to slow things down and I'm going to answer these questions and I'm going to embrace this new version of myself that's coming up. That sounds like a fascinating and terrifying prospect. (laughs) Tell us a little bit about your own experience. So you were previously married and then you weren't married and then you found a new person. Tell us about that. Yeah, so my marriage ended in 2015 and really just to tie it in into with drinking was my marriage was 17 years and I will say I I grew up a uh, Christian, very conservative, just very religious and I didn't drink until the last 2 to 3 years of my marriage. Like it was just everything was so bad and I was so overwhelmed and I don't even remember the moment that I had that first drink. I don't know if maybe I was out somewhere or I was like, things are terrible. I'm going to go to the, I don't remember the first drink. (laughs) My first drink was in my late thirties because of the stress of my marriage. And I, um, it just became a habit. I always had a glass of a bottle of white wine in the house and I would drink to numb. I was so numb those last three years. Nothing brought me joy, nothing. I didn't feel at all. And so that was, I guess you could say, my introduction to, to drinking. I probably would have gone my whole life <laughs> not drinking if my marriage hadn't been so terrible. So um, it ended in 2015. There was a lot of emotional, psychological abuse. And I thought I knew what I was doing in the marriage. I thought I had things figured out. And so when the marriage did end, I was like, oh. I have no idea what I'm doing. (laughs) It was a literal rock bottom. And so I went on this journey. Somehow I knew that there was more and I needed to figure it out. And that's my, I went on a journey of recovery from codependency. I went to therapy. I hired a life coach and that started my journey to become a life coach. Cause I was like, I had to piece together my own healing journey as a divorced person. And so I said, Oh, I just need to help divorced women do this. I love that. It's actually sounds very similar to how I got to doing what I do is that I had the same experience in my life. And now it's what I help my clients do. And I think it's great because when you help people from a perspective of experience and being there yourself, I think it just, it just makes it a lot more human that way. Yes. Yes. Yeah. 
So take me back to when you were in those last couple of years of your marriage, when you described it as being really bad and you found yourself drinking. And now in hindsight, you can, you can recognize that you were drinking to numb out and deal with the stress. But for somebody who's maybe in the middle of that, what are some of the ways that you might recognize that you're drinking to numb yourself during or after a divorce? So one of the ways that I think I recognized that I really was not wanting to be where I was, was the fact that when I didn't drink, I was thinking about (laughs) drinking. And now that I'm a coach, I realize that it's when that emotion is coming up, whatever the emotion was for me, looking back, I was saying the combination of like, it was all the emotions, anger, pain hurt, betrayal, um, shame, right? There was just so much shame around being the person who was in this marriage and having this outer persona that looked one way to the world, but in my reality, there was something completely different happening. So the the way, I, I don't know that I could have recognized it at the time, you know, <laughs> but I would say if you can't sit with yourself without a drink, you might, there might be a problem. Not necessarily that you have a problem or that you're an alcoholic or that you're addicted, but there is a problem. And the problem might just be you're ignoring something in your life. You're in denial or you don't have the emotional bandwidth to handle what's happening in your life or the emotional vocabulary or just support that you need to be able to look at what's happening and deal with it. That's really interesting insight. And I think that looking at it from the perspective of just numbing behavior in general, because it doesn't have to be booze. I mean, a lot of people in that situation would medicate with other things outside of themselves. It could be, you know, social media or numbing out on Netflix or eating foods that you wouldn't normally choose for your healthy lifestyle. There's so many quote drugs of choice that people have to help process through things like this. I would also say that I think sometimes there's an element of accepting that sometimes we do these things in the moment as part of self-care in that you're right, maybe we don't have the tools or the language or the knowledge to be able to really process things to the depth of what's really going on. So sometimes those crutches, those self-medication tools can actually be a necessary part of the process. But I'm interested to ask you now, at what point, and I'm assuming that you're not drinking a bottle of Chardonnay all the time now. Um, <laughs> Correct. Right. So at some point 100%. you recognized that it was something that you that was no longer serving you that you didn't want to do anymore. Tell us a little bit about that part of things in conjunction with your divorce process. Yeah. So when I went on my healing journey, so I went all in, I read all the books, I was at all the meetings. And so my, I think my light, you could say that my light came in was really more from education. So as I, I went to uh, 12 step meetings for codependency and I was like, Oh, this is what I, I had. I was totally new to that world. Like I had no idea <laughs> what was going on. And so as I learned what trauma does and what addiction looks like, whether it's overworking, whether it's control or perfectionism, 
codependency, all of the various forms of coping with pain that, you know, we humans have, I realized I was able to recognize. So mine was more of an intellectual recognition of what was happening in my life. And when I saw that, I was like, oh, okay. But I, I also realized I'm on the right track. So I didn't like say, oh, oh my gosh. I'm drinking to numb, chuck out the <laughs> the bottle. <laughs> I just recognize I'm on the right track. I'm going to my codependency meetings. I'm in therapy. I'm working on shame. I'm reading the books. I'm journaling. I'm doing the work. And so I didn't go on a journey to like stop drinking. I just kept doing the work <laughs> and letting go of all of my crutches, which I had more than one. <laughs> I think a lot I was of us do. Overly busy. Yeah, I was overly busy. I was addicted to sugar, like all the things. And as I went through my healing journey, they just dropped off. And the moment I recognized that I was healing came one day. This was still in the middle of my divorce, which took three years. And I didn't click the, the radio on. Prior to that, I could have said the last 10 years, I could not be in my car driving without having the radio on or sermon or tape. And I was like, oh, I got in my car and I was driving. And this was probably, I would say about a year and a half into my divorce process. Um, I just, I was like, okay with the silence. Yeah, I hear that. And that's the result that happens from doing all of this deep inner work with your own thoughts and emotions. And all those, also the piece of, I highly advocate for learning the brain science behind how addiction works because it really helps to kind of depersonalize what's going on. It makes you less um, likely to question your worth as a human being or wondering if there's something wrong with you because you're doing this behavior. It just kind of makes sense that, yeah, that's human physiology and that's how it works and that's how we cope. And it doesn't mean that we're a bad person or defective or something like that. I think that's really great. But then also the mindset piece and developing that emotional language and going on that journey and doing that work is so huge. I had a similar light bulb moment. It wasn't the same context, but it was kind of, it was kind of the first time that something really bad happened. And I don't remember exactly what it was, but I I do remember this moment in time where I was like, oh, this really stressful thing happened and my immediate reaction isn't to reach for a glass of wine. That's really interesting. I think that means that I'm making progress in a positive direction. (laughs) Yeah. 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 hundred percent. I think we all have that moment when we're doing the work. Yeah, for sure. So I want to take it forward a little bit to my listeners who might be past their divorce and looking at starting dating again, because that's really kind of where your secret sauce is, is helping post-divorce people help to find their next mate. So I think that drinking can be, and again, I haven't dated in over 10 years. I've been with my husband for a while, but um, I remember I met him online on, they didn't have apps back then, but we met on an online dating site and part of dating even in that context, a lot of it had to do with going out and having a drink and there being kind of this central idea of going for drinks and having drinks within the context of dating culture. At least that was my experience. So I wonder maybe what advice you might have for people who are starting 
down the path of dating again, or have maybe dated for a long time, but are just trying to do so without alcohol. What are some of the common concerns that come up with your clients around drinking? Yeah. So what I have, um, what I've experienced with my clients is that drinking can become just the one more thing that we use against ourselves when we're dating. So there is a narrative that when you're dating, there are challenges in the process. And I almost without exception, people will use whatever they think their problem is as the reason why they're facing challenges while dating. So, oh, that's so interesting. (laughs) Yeah. She'll be like, well, I can't find someone because I don't drink and everybody's drinking. Oh, I can't find someone because I'm not uh, religious and everybody's religious. Oh, I can't find someone because everybody wants a younger person. I can't find someone. So we all tend to look at ourselves, find a characteristic about ourselves, and then use it as the reason why we're facing dating challenges versus dating is just challenging. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It doesn't matter who you are, whether you drink or you don't drink. And I will, I will point out, like, my husband does not drink at all, has never, you know, drank, does not drink coffee. And I always refer back to the fact that he put it in his profile. So for him, he thought that was a, a black mark okay. <laughs> against him. So he had this little justification explanation in his profile saying, well, I don't drink and I don't drink coffee, but it's totally okay if you do. <laughs> so. And a lot of my clients who I work with women do the same thing or they feel like, well, I know I'm okay with other people drinking, but I don't and I feel bad and I don't want to make anyone feel bad. And so there becomes like this confusion and um, sort of walking around on eggshells around the subject. Yeah, it almost sounds like they're wanting to apologize for it in advance. Yeah, 100%. And my advice has been like, listen, the beauty of dating is knowing that you're looking for someone who accepts you 100% as you are. And I think we forget that along the way. We start to think somehow we have to conform to what we think other people want, but that you don't want that. You don't want to meet someone who uh, loves a version of you that's not the real you. So my advice is, listen, put 100% of who you are out there There is someone for everyone. You're not going to be the right flavor for probably 90% of the people out there. You just need to keep going until you find your 10%. So I have a client who she does not drink at all for health reasons. And she had this concern going on a first date and wondering how to order water (laughs) if her date ordered a drink. And you know, during the coaching, I, I said, well, why, why would that even be a thing? Like you're ordering something to drink, he's ordering something to drink. And we talked about the fact that she was in the habit of editing herself down or muting parts of herself to be pleasing to her date. And so a lot of that work is in being willing to feel the discomfort of being exactly who you are, whether you drink or don't drink or drink coffee or don't drink or whatever it is that you think is the barrier there is some work in embracing that and being willing to put that out there. I love that. And it's such a, a very 
common human thread that we all experience in our own ways. And it makes total sense that if somebody really strongly identifies as somebody who maybe previously had a problem with alcohol and maybe doesn't anymore, of course, it makes sense that it would be central and forefront in their mind. And of course, it would be central and forefront on everybody else's mind. But it's the same thing as, you know, if if there's something that you don't like about yourself or that you think is disadvantageous about yourself, like, let's take something really obvious, like, oh, well, I don't have blue eyes, I have brown eyes, and I'm going to have to warn everybody that I don't have blue eyes, and my date's going to, you know, wonder if (laughs) there's something wrong with me if I have brown eyes instead. Yeah. (laughs) But people have conversations like that with themselves. It's really interesting. Yeah, a lot of the work is in us accepting ourselves, you accepting yourself for who you are. And that is a lot. Most of my work around being a dating coach is not teaching people how to swipe or, you know, how to open the app. It's how to accept themselves, love themselves and put that real self out there. That makes so much sense. So how do you recommend that people talk about drinking on their dating profile? I generally would advise my clients to say exactly what it is. And for many of my clients, it's not even an issue. I think the apps create a bigger issue out of it because the apps sort of, they choose what you can talk about. (laughs) So they tell you, okay, do you smoke? Do you drink? Do you have kids? And they have about 10 things that you can talk about. And often those aren't the most important things. And second, there's not enough nuance in your, the selections. So when you're on an app there, I don't know how many options there are now. It's been a couple of years since I was on the app, but you know, there's don't, I don't drink at all, drink socially. Um, I don't know what the third one is. If you drink more, I drink every night or whatever. It's like three or four, but there's so, there's such a wide spectrum in there. And so what I tell my clients is, listen, you pick what's closest to you. Like if you drink socially, if you have a, a glass a week at when you're at your girl's night out, put that in there. Or put that you don't drink at all if you don't drink at all. But know that that doesn't convey exactly what's happening in your life to the other person. And when you read that someone drinks socially, you have no idea what that means. So there are still conversations that have to be had on an ongoing basis about what does it mean to drink socially? Does it mean you're at the bar every night drinking socially? <laughs> or twice a year at the Christmas party and at Thanksgiving? Like, what does that actually mean? And so it's very deceptive to just pick something or read something on a profile and think you know what it means. So a lot of what I tell my clients is, when you read a profile, you have no idea what that means, go on the date and then begin the process of figuring out who that person is. That all sounds very normal and logical, but isn't it funny how we get all up in our heads about this stuff and just make it so complicated. And it's interesting to consider that if you're all weird or, you know, shameful or confused about your drinking and how you present it to the world, it's probably going to carry through in how the date is actually going to go in that you're going to show up in a weird and confused and awkward way because you're just spending so much time thinking about it. Yes. And our brains are so good at creating stories. And especially for my very creative, imaginative clients, my artists and (laughs) my artists and communicators, they will read a profile and create a whole story around who this person is. 
before they even go on the first date. And I, my work is always like, listen, we know nothing about this person. <laughs> so just show up, allow them to show you who they are. And you just show up as who you are and see what happens. It's just so simple and logical and necessary because <laughs> human brains are just, we get really creative and overreaching with how we <laughs> make these big we stories do. up. Yeah, because I would say that, I mean, and this isn't in the context of dating, but I think about what I was contemplating not being a person who drinks anymore. Of course, I made up all these stories about the people in my life that my friends would think I'm weird and they wouldn't want to invite me to things anymore. And they would think I'm a a garbage human and wonder if I'm an alcoholic. And they would, you know, think all these things about me. But really, at the end of the day, everybody else is thinking about themselves and they don't really care what's in your glass for the most part. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. Like, and if they do, if you do encounter the person who makes it weird, that's about them. They're thinking something about their drinking and projecting that on you because what's in your glass has nothing to do with them. Yeah. So I think that, I mean, off the hop, it makes sense to have an open mind, but I would think at some point you need to discern whether or not a person's level of drinking or drinking lifestyle is a good match for you. So for example, if I was dating and I'm not going to be dating because I have a husband and we're monogamous, but um, you know, if let's put us out there in the land of imagination and I would imagine that you know, I would probably be okay if somebody were to drink, quote, socially, um, but I probably wouldn't want to be with somebody who drinks every day or in large quantities or makes it a part of every aspect of their life. And that's something that I just kind of think about off the top of my head. But how do you advise people going about, I guess, kind of making the decision on what their line is for them? Yeah. So the first step to doing that is to get to clarity about where you are. What does drinking look like for you as a person? And really being comfortable and clear about what that is so that you can articulate it to the people that you meet, right? And then also getting clear on what you want. A lot of people aren't clear on what they will accept or what is non-negotiable before they go to date. It comes from a scarcity mentality where it's like, well, I don't know if I'll find someone, so I'd better have this really open criteria for it. It's okay to get specific. I want to be with someone who drinks less than four times a month or whatever. You can get super specific. Now, when you're super specific, you have room on either side of that specificity. But if it's just open and you don't think about it, then you have no idea where you'll end up. So I always ask, get to clarity about what you want. When I work with my clients, we dial in on what their ideal partner would look like. They usually end up with something in the range of what their ideal partner would look like, but that's because we, we're very specific. So once you know who you are, what you, how you live, and what you're looking for, then you have the ability to articulate it to someone else. The second piece to that is what I call the information stage of dating. So say you're getting serious about someone, you've gone on you know, two dates a week for the last six weeks. You're like, oh my God, this is really going well. I might go exclusive with this person. Um, then you might need to ask some questions. <laughs> a lot of people have difficulty doing that. No one wants to feel like a drill sergeant. No one wants to feel like they're controlling other people, but it's really just... Um, being willing to have open communication 
and being, being willing to feel the discomfort of asking someone to rise to that level of communication with you. So when you ask the question, it's an invitation for the other person to be honest and to be open to you too. Not everyone is going to rise to that. Some people are going to lie or they're going to, you know, not be open or they're going to be defensive about it. And that tells you something about whether or not they're your person. But you have to be willing to have the conversation with someone at the time that it becomes important to the dating process. And then beyond that, you have to observe. So the person, might, they might believe that they don't have a problem, <laughs> right? They might think they're only having two drinks a week, right? Because our brains are very fuzzy and like to be in denial. And then you have to observe, are they actually only having a drink a week or what's actually happening? And this comes with uh, being in a relationship where you're integrated with each other, where you're actually in each other's lives. You're not like pen palling on the apps or <laughs> seeing each other once a month and calling it dating. So it's really just whatever the context is for that relationship, having open and honest conversations and being willing to observe yourself what's actually happening. That's so interesting. And I would assume can apply to anything that you want to explore with a person from you know, the lifestyle and level of activity in their life or how social they want to be or the kind of sexual and intimate relationship that they want to have with somebody. I bet you could apply this kind of thing to any aspect of dating. That's so interesting. 100%. It's That's the process of getting to know someone. And I think sometimes we, um, we spend, we're not, I guess we're not comfortable with the discomfort of, really entering someone else's life and being a part of that and getting our fingers into their lives and they get in their fingers (laughs) into our lives. But that's what intimacy is, right? It's like you're getting intimate with this person and their lifestyle and their thoughts and their beliefs. And it it can be uncomfortable, but it's so necessary if you're going to have a successful and healthy relationship. For sure. And as somebody who's been married for almost 10 years, I can tell you that a large portion of being in relationship with somebody is being okay with being uncomfortable. And I would say that I, my thought is that I have a good marriage, but it doesn't mean that there's lack of discomfort. It doesn't mean that there's rainbows and daisies and unicorns all the time. It means being willing to have those hard conversations. And so, you know, the sooner you get okay with that, the better, in my opinion. 100%. 100%. Yeah. Oh, so good. So, Shade, I'm sure there are people in my audience that are thinking, yeah, this is the exact person that I need in my life. So please tell us about how you work with people and how people can find you. Absolutely. So I work with women who are divorced and want to be repartnered. So whether commitment to you looks like marriage or having a, a boyfriend or a partnering again, I work with women who want to do that. Um, I work in a one-on-one coaching container. I also have a, uh, a membership program that is available for women who are just ready to be in community around dating. Um, you can find me online at shadecurry.com. That's S-A-D-E-C-U-R-R-Y.com. And on Instagram at shadecurry. Amazing. And I will make sure that I put all of that into the show notes so people can click it and find you easily. Shade, thank you so much for being on the show today. Any parting words for the audience? Any last thoughts? 
Yeah, I would just say for anyone who's thinking about dating, yes, it's a challenge, but it's so, so possible and so, so rewarding when you finally connect with that person. I am an advocate for finding love again after divorce. So my answer to anyone who says, should I do this is always, is always a yes. So Michelle, thank you so much for having me on your podcast today. Thank you for being here. We'll see you soon. 